Luke 12, as we dig into the third passion. Boy, um, I must confess this up front. I think I feel like I've said something to the along the lines of this every week so far. The passions are not necessarily like the most enjoyable sermon series I've ever given. Every week I have to engross myself in the science and technique of sin and the way that the devil is working this into our lives. And then there's conviction and then there's this endless assessment of how am I doing with this? And it's sort of a battle. It's a wrestling match. Um, That said, I knew well in advance that these are not popular topics. Gluttony. I remember when gluttony came on the board, someone yelled out, Oh, man, it's the agape feast. (laughs) (laughs) Then lust. Lust is, you know, that one's like, oh, gross. And now we're on greed. Welcome, America. Okay, so um, this, but, but we're going into these because in this very important season of preparation for Easter, it's also very important that we acknowledge that there is an enemy whom Christ has defeated. And we need to make sure we are on the right side of the battle and that we understand the battles happening so that we know the tactics of the devil because the devil does not arm wrestle us. He doesn't have a chance. And it would be way too obvious. The devil is more wily. He's seductive. He can lure us away from our defenses. Um, Boy, I didn't plan to go into this little tirade here for a second, but, but... Um, in Ephesians 6, and I've shared this before, I love how the King James calls it the wiles of the enemy, so that we can stand against the wiles of the enemy. I love the word wile. It means like schemes and tricks and methods. Um, but because the, the cartoon, uh, Wiley Coyote, he's named Wiley Coyote because he uses not strength to overcome Roadrunner. He never outruns Roadrunner. He uses wiles, schemes, methods to lure Roadrunner. Now, as far as I know, I haven't seen every single episode. I don't think he's ever caught Roadrunner, even though Roadrunner gets lured away. But, so that's not realistic. You and I can get caught in the passions if we allow ourselves to be lured away. That's why we need to do this. Anyways, let's pray, and we'll look at greed. All-sustaining God, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. For we cannot live by bread alone, but we need every word that comes from your mouth. For all scripture is breathed out by you for our benefit. So teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So the passions are not, spiritually speaking, things that we are excited about. They are sins that are excited about us. We often think of having a passion. I have a passion for puppies or for baseball or for ice cream. Um, But the passions are the reverse. These have us. Greed and gluttony and lust and anger and despondency and the list will go down. These have a passion for us. We become their slaves and their captives. And when they do, our lives become as close to hell on earth as we can get. Because this is what hell is. is It's a place for those who are given to the passions so that they can be with the passions forever and ever. And having a significant chunk of my life given too devastatingly to one of the specific passions, I know personally that it is dark and hell to be in the bondage of a a passion. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ brings, brings mercy to heal our hearts. He brings grace to empower us out of the bondage. And that Christ draws us into the nature of God. Because he shares our nature and God's nature. This is the hope we have as we look at these. So, reminder again, if you feel, um, you know, the advisory warnings before you watch a show or something. um, If you feel conviction or deep depression, don't let the enemy have his way. Go straight to the mercy of God, okay? That's what he's here for. That's what we're here for tonight. He loves humankind. He's not mad at us. So the heart has eight cracks, which can be opened up and exploited. This is how 
the demons get to work on us and destroy the work and the joy and the love and the union we have in Christ. These eight cracks are known popularly as the deadly sins. They, over time, are reduced to seven. We're going to actually do seven. We're going to look at two. The last one, we're going to look at self-esteem and pride in one go because they're very similar but different. Um, but they, these are known as the seven deadly sins or they're also known as the passions. Um, they, what happens is when you are under a passion, it renders you passive. You no longer have self-control. You have no longer have self-direction. It Masters you, you are the puppet. You live as a puppet. And, and part of being made in the image of God, the way God has made us, was that he gave us the ability to have dominion over the creation. If I'm rendered a puppet, I am rendered less than the biblical definition of human. I am, in other words, dehumanized. Now, there's a lot of humanism in our culture, but frankly, we can never bring humanity to its proper focus if we are subdued by the passions. It cannot happen. This is why Christ during Holy Week goes through the passion because he takes them on, he wrestles them, he defeats them, and they are now rendered only powerful if we give ourselves to them. Understand? So this is how they work. They come to us as thoughts, ideas, images. They're that's all they can do. And it's not a sin to have an idea. You and I have had, let's talk about greed. You've had this idea of ways to make more or get that, or I want that possession, or how can I better myself so my boss gives me a raise and I can finally get the house I want. Uh, we've had these thoughts. The question is, what do you do with the thoughts? Do you wrestle with the thoughts and recognize where they come from? Or do you think that's a good idea? Because that's stage two. After the thought comes consent. And consent is when I buy, I give myself to the thought. I say, yes, yes, let's go with that. And now you begin to plan. And then you either you're mentally acknowledging sin at that point can be mental. Or you carry out the idea physical. Consent is when sin happens. But what happens is when I give my consent to a passion with repetition, it becomes second nature. And when greed or any of the other passions becomes your second nature, you are now impulsively doing what greed tells you to do. And that's when you are in captivity. That's when you are owned by a passion. That's when you are, as James says in chapter one, dead. This is how James put it. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's the thought. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That's your giving consent. The semi-sexual word now became very sexual. You conceive and give birth to sin. And then, once sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Don't take this lightly, because Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5.8 that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. These are eight things that he uses to sink into us. These are eight crowbars to get into the cracks of our hearts and pry them open and invade. So, again, if you feel in despair, don't go there. Go to the Lord who said in Matthew 9, I came for the sick. I came to give mercy to the sick. That's who I'm here for. And that's who he's here for. Amen. So tonight we look at greed. Uh, the old word, by the way, is avarice. Um, I, don't, I honestly have never heard that word used in common language, except for old Christian textbooks. <laughs> avarice. We use the word greed. Avarice is just really a, an overblown sense of greed. So we'll go with the word greed um, by the way, greed is an interesting one because uh, there are personality types out there. There's lots of those things floating around, right? Many of you taken on before. Um, my personality type, the one that I did, it comes with, um, it gives you a passion that your type is most prone to. And mine happens to be, it actually used the word avarice, greed. So here you go. We're opening the door on my dark, dirty deeds. 
Um, it's funny, though, because I don't relate to greed as being my passion, but then I realized that greed is not just the accumulation of things, because I'm somewhat of, I at least in heart and in intent, I'm a, a minimalist. I don't like to have a ton of things or things in my space. Um, I like things simple, um, but that's not all that greed is. So what is greed? Greed is an unnatural desire to accumulate or hoard possessions. An unnatural desire to acquire or accumulate, I'm sorry, acquire or hoard possessions. The hoarding part I can relate to. There's a deep anxiety within us and within me for sure that wants to, once I have something, never let it go. I may not have a lot, but I don't want to let what I have go for fear of maybe needing it. There's evidence if you look at, I do the bills, so I see the shopping, and I know who was shopping on what week by the price tag. My wife's a frugal grocery shopper. I practice hoarding when I go grocery shopping. One jar of peanut butter, we need like five. It keeps, we'll go through it. That's... (laughs) Um, It's an unnatural passion because if you think about the two we've done so far, gluttony is considered a natural passion because we need to eat. Now, it's a a bad use of eating. The the need to eat, it's uh, it's it's used poorly, so it's a passion called gluttony. Lust, we need to populate the earth, so that's there for a reason. So it's just used improperly and it becomes lust. But greed, according to some of the old Christian writers... Uh, that I was reading, they said that greed has no natural counterpart. There's no place for greed. There's no good side of it. So it's called an unnatural passion. Maximus the Confessors in the 7th century, he, he put it quite nicely like this. When I read this, I was like, that's it. This is, this is greed. The passion of greed is revealed when one is happy in receiving, but unhappy in giving. Ouch. I wouldn't necessarily think I'm a greedy person, but put that way, yeah, I really like receiving things, and I really don't like giving things, except for those occasional moments when I just feel so generous all of a sudden. Then he said, he ended that by saying, such a person cannot be a good steward. Why? Because we're given things by God to use for others or give to others. They're not for just us to grasp onto. So let's look at Luke 12, verse 13. We're going to read through this. There's two sections. They go together, and you'll see why, and you'll hear why. And it's very powerful. Um, This is, by the way, mirrored in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. But Luke, interestingly, has um, the parable of the barn builder right before the passage that's in the Sermon on the Mount And it's a genius connection. So here we go. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Some sort of dispute about the land they get. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, Ah, the thought, right? What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, Here's his consent to the thought. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich 
toward God. And he said to his disciples, so in connection with this parable, he now says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them, often with your neighbor's trash can in the street, right? (laughs) Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In its summation, it seems that what Jesus would be driving at is that the heart of greed is an unbelief in the providence of God. That at the heart of greed is that I stop believing in a God who cares for his creatures and has the means to provide for them. Greed, in other words, takes that role on itself. I must provide for myself. I must care for myself because no one else has got my back. So this greed starts with anxiety. It starts with an anxiety about our, invul- about our vulnerability and our insecurity. Do you feel that today? My goodness. Like, if we didn't feel it before, which we did, we especially felt it during COVID, and then... In the two years since, you realize two years ago, like this month, we were all like huddled in store, like uh, bunk, bomb bunkers, bunker bombs, what are they called? We were like hiding away, fighting over toilet paper and grocery stores and like, oh, we survived that one. Now we got like this mess in the Eastern Europe or, or section of the world, like, right? Like, is there, do you feel vulnerable? Do you feel insecure? Do you worry about the future? I think we are lying if we don't, it's, or you're just not thinking about it, which may be good. Maybe you're just in denial. I don't know. But such anxiety, the greed starts as anxiety because we know we're vulnerable and we know that we're insecure. So this anxiousness gets produced. So it starts with this anxiousness, but then it seeks to, what greed then does is it takes this anxiousness by the throat and says, I will control you by securing my future with stuff. That's what greed does. And so here we have to be careful. You might think, I don't have a lot of stuff. I'm not rich. Well, greed has nothing to do with how much you have. I mean, it obviously can, but sometimes greed is simply driven by what we do out of anxiety. Where does anxiety drive us? What does it cause us to think about, to set our salvation in? How are we wrestling with our insecurity and vulnerabilities right now? Oh, stock market's going up. I feel better. Oh my gosh, at least gas hasn't hit $6. Not yet at five points. I don't know. I checked yesterday. It goes up 50 cents a day, right? So I don't know. Um, Ah, oh, my salvation when the gas is coming down. We're saved. Like, honestly, we think this way. 
And we must check ourselves that we let not greed become our savior or our way of navigating an insecure, anxious world. So what Jesus does is he directs us toward trusting in God's providence. That's what this passage is full of. There's a negative example with the rich man who builds barns. Then there's the positive examples of ravens and lilies. And these are trusting God's providence. And then God beautifully, Jesus beautifully says it at the end there, fear not, little flock. It is your father's desire to give you the kingdom. What good is a kingdom if I die? Uh, Hello, Easter's in five weeks. Let me remind you of that. Um, The kingdom is everything. It's everything. So the barn builder does not direct his trust toward God's providence. He has to secure himself. Um, Anxious, by the way, is used three times in this passage. Verse 22. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Honestly, like, what has anxiousness done for you? It's glued you to the news is what it's done. Uh, Verse 26, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? And then he throws in the word worried in verse 29. Nor be worried. I love the word. At least in English, worried means to gnaw on something, actually. Like a dog worries a bone. That's what worried means. So when you're worried, it means your thoughts are chewing up these fears and these anxieties. Why are you gnawing away at this? Why is this taking the attention of your heart? And that's actually in the Greek what anxious refers to. It refers to a being, a being troubled in such a way that you start to seek a thing out. And it comes from a root word which actually, which actually means to be divided. So that the root of the word anxious is to be divided, then to be troubled and seek something out. So you see what Jesus is doing in verse 20, 30 something, you know, it's over there somewhere. Um, in verse 31, he said, instead, seek the kingdom and those things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom. So anxiousness is trying to divide our trust in the providence of God. It's trying to get us to focus on the material world and those things that we think that we need desperately. But he's saying, instead, reconnect, re, don't divide, but unite your vision, your yearning, your longing on the kingdom of God. That's the solution. Greed goes one way, but desiring the kingdom goes a total another way. And this is actually what Jesus tells us throughout the Gospels, is that greed and God have two opposing value systems. Completely opposing value systems. And this is the problem with greed, is it pulls us away from the kingdom and makes us think of our kingdom, this kingdom, the now kingdom, and then entangles us in the things that are around us. We get locked in to the material world. Okay, so um, here's the problem with greed then, is it is impossible for us to be greedy and to be great in the kingdom of God. It's absolutely impossible to be both. Greed will make you great in the kingdom of this world, but you cannot be great in the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. Don't believe me, ask the dishes. Um, it comes from Jesus. Sorry, you're a dad. You watch uh, Beating the Beast. Um, consider, Jesus, consider Jesus in the parable of the sower. This is actually Luke 18, verse 14. Remember the sower sowing seed, and some of it gets snatched by birds, some of it gets burned away by the sun. But then, um, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. The material world can actually choke what God's doing in your life. Uh, Jesus gives two parables in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field for the treasure. He recognizes something here. Second parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought that one pearl. Jesus is inviting us to disdain our worldly gain because the kingdom is the greatest possession we can have. The rich young man, you know, Mark, he's in all three of the synoptic gospels, but Mark, Mark chapter 10, 
verse 21, Jesus looks at that rich ruler. Remember, he says, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Difficult, not impossible, difficult. Why? He's not saying that being rich is evil. Greed, the desire for accumulation and or hoarding is what's evil. And when we accumulate more, we tend to hold on to it more tightly because it's never enough. And that's what makes it difficult. We cannot be great in the kingdom and be great in greed. And then finally, Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The two masters, two opposing value systems, two completely different kingdoms. So why can you not be greedy and at the same time be great in the kingdom of God? Because greed will produce two major diseases in our lives. The first is that greed will blind us to the spiritual world. Greed will blind us to the spiritual world. It sets our vision on the material. And Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verse 22. You remember he's talking about the eyes are the lamp of the body, and a good eye receives light, and a bad eye receives, cannot receive light. It has darkness. What's he talking about there? He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then right after that, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, I think I just actually before that, I think after that he says you cannot serve two masters. You can check it. There's all there. Either way, we know that in the context, he's referring to greed and money and God. So a healthy eye refers in the Greek to something that's single and whole. It's single. It's not divided. It's not distracted. It's looking at the kingdom. It receives light. But a bad eye, literally diseased. A diseased eye cannot receive light. It's a, instead, it's receiving darkness. And why is this? Because the healthy eye is focused on the kingdom and it holds things lightly. It says, thank you for this. You can have that because the kingdom is my possession. These things are just in the way. But a bad eye is diseased because it wants the things. It's nearsighted. It's, I think that's the right one. Where it can only see what's in front of you and it's just grabbing these and it can't see the kingdom. That's the darkness. It's the disease. You cannot see the spiritual world if we are given over to the material world. It blinds us. Greed blinds us. Uh, Think about Elijah's servant, Gehazi. Do you remember him? He was, it's 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, he's like the commander of the Syrian army. And he's a leper. The Syrians are bad guys, at least from the Jewish perspective. They're bad. They're fighting. Like They're, they're killing Jews. Naaman comes to Elisha because he hears that his God can heal him. Well, through a series of events, Naaman's leprosy is cleansed. He wants to reward Elisha with just a king's treasure. And Elisha has his eyes so focused on the kingdom of God and the spiritual realm, he just doesn't even see the point in that stuff. He's like, nah, I'm fine. Gehazi, on the other hand, watches Naaman going away with this load and goes, Ah! If you didn't want it, I want it. So worse than that, right there, just the greed is already in his heart. But then he decides to run with the thought and he goes after Naaman and he creates a lie. My master changed his mind. Some travelers just came in. We, we need the resources to provide for them and clothe for them. And Naaman goes, oh, sure, here, have this and have this and have this. And he's like, really, that too? Yeah, that too, yeah. And he takes it and he goes and he know, hides it somewhere. And Elijah's like, what were you doing? You don't lie to a prophet. <laughs> Their eye is whole, right? They see all. Um, Elijah sees all. His eyes are on the kingdom. He sees all. But Kazi, his eye is blind. He's diseased. He can only see stuff. 
He can't even see the fact that Elijah knows exactly. He lies and says, I was doing something. Elijah is like, I know what you were doing. And because of your greed, the leprosy that was on Naaman will now be on you. And so now he becomes a spiritual condition. This leper, this numb, this, this can't really use your body anymore. That's what happens so spiritually. We become blind to the spiritual world. Greed will blind us. It will debilitate us. Um, second, second problem of greed. It blinds us to the spiritual world. And second, it, it binds us to the material world. So not only do we stop seeing the spiritual world, but all we have is the material world. So it binds you to it. You need it. And this is the only realm in which you can find greatness and the only realm in which you can survive in. So the possessions weigh us down, like quite literally. Like these possessions start hovering over you and holding you down to this world. You know, you know what Jesus just said in, in Luke 12, verse 34? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if my treasure is in the material world, where's my heart? It's bound and married and desirous of the material world. It cannot, therefore, go beyond to the riches of the kingdom. This is why Jesus is... The Gospels, the Gospels are loaded with teachings on this concept of greed. Because you cannot be great in the kingdom and greedy for material wealth. So it binds us to the material world. And what happens when you're bound to the material world is that your stuff begins to determine your status. Your stuff begins to determine your status. So I judge my value based upon what I have. And then I judge your value based upon what you have. Just being a Christian doesn't inoculate you against this. If you live in affluent areas, I spent some time in Orange County. And man, does it seductively change your outlook on the meaning of people's worth. You drive a 2008 Civic with the paint peeling off, and it's got, a, it's got a three on the license plate. Three, right? What are we in the sevens now or something? It's, you know, um, it's not, you have, it doesn't even have tinted windows. You just feel old school. How do you feel? When you live in that environment day after day and you're not actually pursuing the kingdom, you're going to eventually begin to feel yourself lesser than the person that just passed from the Audi 7 or whatever. In the, or the, well, I guess now it's the Tesla with a little sticker that says, I can go in the carpool lane, you can't. <laughs> you know? It, it, that stuff can, we are not inoculated just by being Christians. We must guard ourselves against determining our worth and the worth of others by material means, which means we cannot let greed bind us to the material earth. Our stuff does not define my status and it does not define your status. But then if we are bound to the material world, second, our stuff can determine our home. Our stuff can determine our home. There's a, there, one character in a show um, said this line. It just stuck with me. It came out in the study. Um, the character said, if my stuff is here, I'll just end up living here again. You try to move out, but your stuff is somewhere else. You'll just end up moving there again is what she's confessing. If my stuff is here, I'll just end up living here again. You know me. I live where my stuff lives. Now, that's comical, but it's also critical that we realize how true that can be of us. We live where our stuff lives. If you can't imagine being calling something else home when your stuff is over there, ooh, are we maybe a little bit too attached, a little bit too bound to the material world? Is you, do you live where your stuff lives, or does your stuff just happen to live where you live? John Chrysostom had the seeding. He had he dealt with a lot of wealth in uh, Constantine, uh, Constantine, um, Constantinople. Uh, so he often let the rich have it, and he said this: um, "I seethe with indignation because when so many blessings lie in wait for us, we are lazy." We make little account of them and make every effort to have splendid homes in this world. On the other hand, we are not concerned. We take no thought as to how we may possess even a little abode in heaven. 
how much of our energy and time and thinking is being consumed by the place we live on earth. We're being challenged to think of our actual eternal home. So that's the problem with greed. It blinds us to the spiritual world and it binds us to the material world. But there's hope, brothers and sisters. We have in Christ power. He gives us grace to climb out of this and to move on into his virtues. His virtues. So what's, what's the virtue of greed? Uh, I, would, I wanted to say it's generosity. Like if greed's like this hoarding, it's accumulating generosity, it's this giving and this open-handedness. And that's true. It's an aspect. But I actually, digging deeper, I feel like the Bible had another level to say. Generosity comes from a place of contentment. Unless I'm content in Christ, I will never rid a heart of greed. I will always need something else. Greed, brothers and sisters, is conquered when we are content in Christ. So I'm going to finish in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul talks about this contentment in Christ. Philippians is to your right, and before Hebrews... Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians 4. So you guys know this verse, by the way, but I'm going to read some passages around it too. Um, have you ever heard this one? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Some translations, through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, I always see that one plastered on a like inspirational poster. And someone's like climbing this like El Capitan in Yosemite or something. I can do all things. Snowboard trick. I can do all things. Basketball teams have often adopted this. We can do all things. That's nice. It's not at all what Paul's saying. At all. So watch this. Uh, Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, or you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show your concerns, what he's saying. You didn't have an opportunity to show me you cared, but I knew that you cared. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Wow. How did you do it, Paul? How, what's the trick for learning this contentment? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's how I can do it. Contentment is finding satisfaction in all circumstances. Um, in other words, this is, what he's saying is this is in Christ. This contentment only comes in Christ. It does not come from infinite content. Infinite content does not make us infinitely content. That's a lyric line from Arcade Fire's satirical album, basically making fun of our culture of needing stuff. A beautiful album in that way. And this line, infinite content does not make us infinitely content. Consider this. We have infinite content infinite content. Um, actually, just the other night, um, my in-laws are in town, and so Brittany and them and her sister, they were going to watch this, you know, like it was some Hallmark movie thing, and I was like, eh. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, eh. I want to watch like a documentary or something like, and so I, I wanted, I was looking around on my iPad for something. I just felt too lazy to read. It happens occasionally. I love reading, but and I do it all the time, but I just felt lazy that night. So I, I, I was uh, 30 minutes go by, and I'm like on this app, and then that app, and then it's like I was paralyzed by options. I literally could not make up my mind. It was, and I'm, I, I despise it. I despise the fact that we can watch anything, that we can listen to anything. I don't have, I know this is really unusual for my age, and people younger than me are like, you're crazy, man. All my students say this. I don't have Spotify, because it literally paralyzes. I don't listen. I can't choose what to listen to. Um, so I just don't, because I think infinite content is actually doing the reverse. It's making us so dissatisfied with everything. 
And, and so here we live in a culture that's not only anxious because of the times of the world, but we are actually producing anxiousness in our lives through these habits, these embodied habits we have of consuming an infinite variety of things. And, and we have now devices which are all tailored. There's a system in this world which is tailored to telling you, you have control over what gives you pleasure. And so as we swipe things, just with a magical godlike finger movement, we have this control over infinite content. And what is it doing to us? Well, it's not making us content. It's making us think that we're God, but we're not God. So you'll never feel content if you are in the place of God, because you will never have the ability to take the place of God. And then you're going to feel more anxiety and stress because you realize that if things are bad already, it's even worse when you are God holding us all together and you realize you can't. And that's why anxiety is on the rise in our nation. It is skyrocketing. All you therapists are going to be in business forever. (laughs) I wish that wasn't true. Because we have not learned contentment. Because we thought infinite content will give that to us. It can only come in Christ. Only come in Christ. So here's what contentment is. It's living in the generosity of God. It's living in the generosity of God through Christ. So all, that, all that generosity is given to us in and through Christ. So it's living in that generosity of God given through Christ instead of living in the scarcity and anxiety of the world. We, from a materialistic perspective, live in a scarce world. We've got to gobble things up and keep it because it's a dog-eat-dog world. We're vulnerable. There's not enough, so we're anxious never enough time. There's never enough money. There's never enough food. There's never enough friends. There's never enough pleasure or comfort or there's never enough space. There's never enough comfort on my bed. There's never, you just go down the list, right? There's never enough. A materialistic viewpoint is always living in scarcity and anxiety, but contentment is living in the generosity of God through Christ. So we see this beautifully illustrated in our passage from earlier in Luke chapter 12, We read this when Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He didn't say, well, God is considering it. If the human race gets their act together, if Richard would just save more souls, or Michael would just... It is his pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he's calling then us to live a life that can receive the kingdom. Let go. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroy, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you just let go a little bit, you can actually receive the kingdom. And then, epically, and we've been, we're reciting this all through Lent, Philippians 2, verse 5. It's just on the left of your Bible. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That does not mean Jesus thought, oh, I've got to somehow like reach for God. He is God. It means that being God was not something he hoarded. He didn't say, this is my identity. Grasp. No one's going to touch this. It's the complete reverse of what the gospel actually says. And this passage goes on to show us what he does instead. Instead of grasping, he does this. But he made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is releasing, releasing, releasing. So Jesus is not grasping and clutching at his divinity. He's giving it away to become human. He's giving it away to die. He's giving it away to us so that we can receive his nature and be united with God. There's no gospel if Jesus grasps and clutches at his divinity. He gives it. And now we are made sons and daughters of God. This is the generosity of God in Christ that contentment lives in. We're not in a scarce world with a being that's holding everything back. He has actually done the reverse and given us more than we can conceivably see. We're so stupid and blinded by the material realm that we don't understand how generous God has been. And that's why we're not content. 
Okay, so how do we live in contentment in Christ? I want to give you four quick things from Philippians. How do we get to this point of living in God's generosity? Because feelings of anxiety and scarcity pull us to greed every day. They're pulling at us. So one, give frequent thanks to God. Give frequent thanks to God. Because when we are preoccupied with our getting, when I'm preoccupied and what can I have and get, I cannot receive what God is giving We're so occupied with getting, we cannot receive his giving. This is Philippians 4, verse 4. You also know this one very well. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, so do not be what? Anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is the practice of looking upon God's generosity. And it grows the more you do it. Second, make your needs known to God in prayer. Look at, you already heard it. So in everything, do not be anxious. This is verse six, but about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So not only the frequent giving of thanks, but making your needs known to God in prayer. Because we must trust in the providence of God. Giving my needs to him is trusting him to address it. And I must stop trusting in my control to provide provisions against the future. Anxiety wants to guard against all those things. But prayer is trusting God's providence. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good desire. That's providence. He cares and he has a means to meet. Third, ponder God's providence. Ponder God's providence. Third, ponder God's providence. Verse 8. You also know this. This happens to be a very popular section of scripture. 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you're real honest, what are you thinking about these days? A lot of other things to think about. But these are the things we're supposed to be thinking about, and it's God's providence and the goodness of God. Think upon these things. And then four, untie your heart's entanglement to things. Untie your heart's entanglement to things by... Fast, uh, not fasting. Drop that one. Tithing. Tithing. The concept of tithing is the untying of my heart's entanglements to this world. Now, tithing's not the only way. But this is the, this is, in the Bible's vision, the first step. Tithing is 10%. That's what God asks. It's 10% of what we have. Give him 10%. It's actually not a lot. Kings of empires demand more than that. Your taxes demand more than that. Your tithe is probably your gas bill right now, I know, but um, it probably is actually higher than that anyways to begin with, but that doesn't matter. Um, tithing, God asks just a mere 10%, but here's the thing, is it's just enough to condition our hearts toward giving rather than getting. That's the aim. It's a habit that the church has been doing forever because it was based on the Old Testament temple where the Israelites were to give a tenth to the temple, and specifically to the temple. It was for the livelihood of the priesthood. So when the Bible in the New Testament talks about giving, there's an assumption of that carrying on, because much of these practices weren't assumed to be done away with. The Bible still talks about sacrifices. The church's sacrifices look different. It's thanksgiving and praise. It's not animals as much. And it's Christ, and it's not animals as much. Um, But also the giving So there's an assumption in the New Testament that 10% is still on the table. But then we also think about things like, but I want to give to this and I want to give to that. My suggestion and what it seems to me to be biblical and traditional in the Christian faith is that 10% goes directly to God. But I want to know where it goes. Okay, ask your pastor about that. But honestly, there you go again. It's my money. I want to know what's happening to my money. Calm down. You American individualist who thinks you're entitled to what you earned. Yes, I understand. The idea is that we let it go and we let it go. That's what tithing does. 
is it changes our relationship to us to a portion of what we have. Then I want to help this missionary. I want to adopt a kid in Uganda. I want to give Pastor Brandon a birthday cake. I want to don't. don't. It's Lent. I'm not eating a birthday cake. <laughs> um, Brittany already made me a lemon pie, so we're good. <laughs> breaking a little bit of my fast there for that, but it's all worth it. Um, anyways, oh yeah, I want to give to the, no, I'm not your donation box, don't worry. Uh, I want to give to other things, right? Okay, cool. 11%, 12%, 15%, right? It's the, it's the off the 10%. That's the biblical vision, at least as I understand it. Um, but nonetheless, my point is not to be detailed about that. It's to understand that our money being given in such a way that it's less in our control because it's not ours. Okay. Um, when you give, just a couple of reminders, because sometimes it's like, no, this is the worst part. I can be not greedy, but giving is like the, well, hold on. <laughs> the passions are overcome by doing what God gives us to do. We overcome them. We don't just passively sidestep them. We got to have virtues. If we don't have virtues in place, the passions just come back with seven demons more hostile. That's what Jesus taught in one of the parables. Generosity is in place. Contentment's in place. When you give, don't worry. God supplies your needs. Oh, I never gave you the passage for this. I'm running out of time, so I guess I'm just trying to like speed it up in my head. But um, if you look, it's in verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14 to verse 19. Paul's there saying like, hey, look, if you have opportunity, like thank you for your gifts to me and blah, blah, blah. In verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And then in verse 19, so I want you guys to be blessed, so give. And then verse 19, and God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So that's where that's coming from. Um, So God supplies our needs in return, so don't worry. We discover how little we need to live on when we give. When you give, you realize you didn't need it. You're still alive. That's a good thing to learn. And then um, we participate. This one blew my mind, so bear with me. Lastly, we participate in God's divine nature when we give. Because we see that it's God's nature to give. We've seen that, especially Christ. But I get to participate in that nature when I give. I'm becoming like God. Now, Gregory of, of a, Gregory the theologian, or Gregory of Nazianzus, fourth century brilliant writer, a theologian of the Christianity, um, he said this really trippy thing. You have to bear with his language. He means likeness to God. And here's how he writes it. He says, imitate God's philanthropy philanthropy. It is in this, in doing good, that man is preeminently divine. Do not forego the opportunity for deification or participating in God's nature is what he means by those words. Do not forego, he says, the opportunity of becoming like God. So if you have the chance to give, Imitate his generosity. Imitate his love for humanity. For in doing so, you are being caught up in his likeness. It's a bold way he put it. And it struck me dead. I laid over sideways when I read it. I was, I was on the ground. It was okay. Um, but there we go, friends. Greed is very demonic. Contentment and generosity is very godlike. Lord, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.